Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Lynn. She has Hashimoto's and many thyroid symptoms, including fatigue, brain fog, and just feeling up and down. She has tried so many things, but could not get a handle on her thyroid and Hashi flare-ups. She tried all types of thyroid medications and lots of different supplements, but things were really not improving. When I met Lynn, I saw that her TSH was really fluctuating, so we needed to stabilize her immune system. The thing is, that she was already eating really well and taking many of the supplements that I recommend. So while of course there was still room for improvement there, my sense was that something else was playing a role in addition to her biochemistry. There was one area in particular that I really wanted to explore to help solve her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me, before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Lynn's struggles with multiple thyroid-related and autoimmune symptoms. So joining me on the show today to talk much more about this is my colleague, mentor, and friend, Dr. Mario Martinez. He is a psychoimmunologist, which means that he studies how our mind affects our immune system. And he's also the best-selling author of The Mind-Body Code and How the Mind Wounds and Heals. Dr. Mario has been on the show a few times now. He's definitely a fan favorite, so you're in for a treat. Dr. Mario, welcome again. So excited to have you back. Oh, thank you. It's a wonderful opportunity to try to share some of my latest thinking. Oh, I love it. So there are many facets to optimizing our thyroid health and really our health in general. We, of course, have the biochemistry, and that's a big part but it's certainly not everything. Our mind plays a huge role, and this is really a large area of your expertise, and so I'm really, really excited to dig in. A concept that you've been writing a lot about recently is authenticity. So can you tell us a bit about what it means to be authentic versus inauthentic? That is a a great subject that I've been spending a lot of time because there's tremendous misconception. We're, we're taught in cultural uh, common terms that, that authentic is to be yourself and to be, uh, to be honest, but uh, we have to go a little deeper than that because that's just not enough. That's just a very small part of what really can be conceptualized as, as your truth. 
And I just want to briefly go back to where, where the word comes from. The word uh, I've been actually doing what I call now, it, it's a new field that I created, um, <laughs> bio um, etymology, which is the, the origin of the word and what is the biological consequences or biocognitive consequences. So going back to the Greeks, the word truth, and you'll see how it comes together, and we'll go specifically from health to, to thyroid, but, but we have to have a kind of a terrain to talk about. The Greeks called it aletheia, and aletheia, A-N-E-A means lack of, like uh, amorphous is lack of form, so a is lack of, and aletheia is forgetting, so it's unforgetting. And mythology is very important because that's a psychology that, that cultures create and then later science comes around, but you have to understand the mythology. So what they said is that Hades, who was the god of the underworld, when anyone was coming out of that underworld to be immortal again, they had to drink water from that uh, Letha river, which would then allow them to forget everything in that life. And this goes along with, with the Hindus and the Buddhists who talk about uh, if, if you're going to reincarnate, uh, you're going to have um, karmic amnesia. You forget everything. That's the mythical part. But then Heidegger, as a, an existential philosopher from the 20th century, brought it back and he said, okay, let's see if we can go deeper with this and figure out what the Greeks were trying to do and how can we make it more plausible and more workable. So what he did with Aletheia is he said, what it means is that Aletheia or truth has to be unfolding, bringing back what you have forgotten. And it's not just the truth, your evidence, whatever, whatever is evident is truth, is what you have forgotten that is not authentic about you. And one of the ways to do that, which I'll, I'll explain later, is to see, okay, this is my authenticity, but what do I need to unfold? What do I need to uh, discover here that is actually covering up my authenticity by the inauthenticity that I have? Having said all of that, how do we apply that then to psychonominology and health and specifically to uh, to thyroid problems because that's what you work with. Well, we are we have a mind-body process where language had to become a part of, of the brain. So the brain is cultural. Before you could smell a lion a, a hundred feet away and you would have cortisol secreted and, and norepinephrine, language comes on and then language says there's a lion a hundred feet away and you're going to secrete the same amount because the culture has been shaped by the brain to understand not only the smell and the, the senses, but also the words. So words are really very important. So for example, if you say, I am a good person, well, your psychoneurology will say, let me look at the evidence of whether you're a good person or not. And it goes back and you begin to look at when you're not being a good person and that you have a history of not being a good person. You create an incoherence there. That incoherence creates then the, some people just live on high levels of cortisol because they're on alarm. It creates other kinds of immune stressors, but most importantly, as you know well, inflammatory molecules. So if you're living a life that is not your truth, that's going to be affecting inflammation, stress hormones, and what does that do? It triggers your propensity for a particular illness. In this case, it could be a Hashimoto, it could be the different kinds of problems with the, uh, with the thyroid. So in addition to doing all the things that, that, that we are doing to help people with thyroid problems and other kinds of problems, 
we have to also look at what is the inconsistency of what we're living and what we think we are. And that's very important psychoneurologically, and especially as we, you and I have talked about before, that portal that I call the portal of expression or the chakras, but I call it the portal of expression, is, is really very sensitive to thyroid cancer problems. And as you know, there's a high correlation with, with women who are not able to express themselves who develop by thyroid problems. So that's kind of the overall picture. And then we can take it from there and, and be more specific as, as much as you want to. Yeah, no, this is very, very interesting and makes sense. And especially, yes, with thyroid being in the throat, right? So that has a lot to do with freedom of expression. But what I think is even more interesting is this sort of misconception that you talk about in terms of authenticity, because you're right. I think most people think being authentic is telling the truth, right? And there are some situations where people know what they want to say, but they feel like they can't for various reasons. You know, maybe they don't want to hurt someone or they don't know what's going to happen if they do or things like that. But you're saying that it's not just about telling the truth, but it's about the unfolding and sort of remembering what you've forgotten, which is a whole other kind of a whole other side to it, right? Yes, very much. I remember uh, it, this is more philosophical than I thought when my son was about seven. I asked him something, something about it. He forgot. He said, oh, I forgot to remember. And that's very Heidegger. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to remember. So that's a good term that I use. I forgot to remember who I am. And what happens is that our culture will shape us into something that we should be for the culture that is collectively appropriate for the culture, but it doesn't individuate you into anything. So, for example, let's say that you uh, that a little girl, because we're talking about the women mainly with uh, with thyroid problems, a little girl had to learn to be submissive because she had a very oppressive father or mother. Doesn't matter, or both. Which is so common. Yes, it had to function to be submissive, to withhold your information, to not fight back, to not have any boundaries. That was that was a very good thing to do because it was a survival adjustment. What happens though is that after a while. You're out of there, and you have learned these methods so well, and it works so well for you that you begin to live out your world as if you were still under a, a, an oppressive father or mother. So you continue to suppress your emotions. You continue to let other people take advantage of you. And that has psychoneurological components because there's, I believe there's an override. When, you, when you're doing something for survival, it'll override you getting sick because that's more important to survive. Once you do it without any function, then it has a critical mass and it begins to create a, uh, an illness, just like fibromyalgia and some of the, uh, some of the illnesses that, that you know about with, uh, with thyroid. Now, how do you think the body knows when it's a critical mass? Meaning, how does the body know that it's for survival when she's a little girl versus, say, this girl being you know, in her 20s or 30s and working somewhere and being very submissive to everything that the boss says or everything that the friends say or her roommates or whatnot? Well, that's a great question. And, and the, reason, the, the reason that, uh, that we know that it works is because the brain interprets things contextually. The, the cells interpret things contextually. A T cell will interpret things differently than a, than a B cell. So it's contextual. Everything's contextual. So in the context of the little girl, she doesn't know, and then her body doesn't know, that she has resources. There's no, there are no resources. The brain is, is, is very limited. It has a powerful person who's scaring her, and she doesn't have the resources to overcome because she doesn't have the psychological components to to be assertive. She doesn't have that. So then the brain and the body know 
that this is a situation of survival. This is a situation of, I, I can't do this because if I do it, uh, uh, the brain will, will think I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get killed. You're not, but that's the, that's the survival mode. So there's a survival mode that we have primitive times from way hundreds of thousands of years, and that's the, uh, the fight or flight. So in this case, she can't fight and she can't flight. So it's a real conundrum because it puts the person into helplessness. And helplessness is what causes the problem. Helplessness, the moment that you feel helpless, that you don't have resources and something overcoming you, your natural killer cells go down, your IgAs go down, your inflammation goes up, and your immune system becomes helpless because you have a helpless consciousness. But later, you are 25 years old, you're in a different context, you're an adult, you have resources, that person's not going to hit you. And yet you're responding as if you were the little girl. So it requires an awareness. It requires a mindfulness to, to shift the, the consciousness and then learn what she couldn't learn when she was little, which is setting limits, allowing people not to like what she has to say. That's the learning. But it's got to be a, a relearning process to, to answer your question. Right. And the body knows when, I guess, she's more helpless because you mentioned that it may not affect your health as negatively when it's really in danger versus when it's not. Right, because it uh, th- there is an override. I think this is what I call the the survival override that we're we're programmed. We're not well. We're not programmed. We're designed from way back to do things that are that have to do with our survival, and it went on for hundreds of thousands of years before it went into from survival to meaning. Before there was no meaning. Before language and and consciousness, there was no past, present, and future. About thirty, forty thousand years ago. Consciousness uh, co-emerged, language co-emerged, and then you begin to look at meaning. And the first meaning that we found uh, anthropologically is, number one, burying our dead, and number two, creating trinkets that didn't have any tool value just for for beauty. That is meaning. That that has no survival value at all. So if someone is wondering if they are being authentic, because as you mentioned, it's not just about being truthful. It's also about remembering what you may be forgetting, as you said. How would they go about starting to try and to figure it out? Well, first, if you, if you, and sometimes we get so desensitized to our body cues that we don't pick up the stress and we don't pick up the signals of something that that's not right. So first is to becoming aware. And there's some techniques that, you know, that I've done in my books and other that, that teach you how to be, become more aware. But but so, for example, you, you're with somebody and, and you're talking to somebody and they say, um, I'm going to make it simple, but then it gets more and more complicated. They say, um, do you want to go to a, um, let's say, Italian restaurant? It doesn't matter. An Italian restaurant. And you happen to not like Italian. You like Japanese better. And you say yes. And even to the point where Japanese food may make you sick, you say yes. Well, there's an incoherence there with who you are and who you're wanting to be. You're, you're giving an inauthentic response. So your body, if you're not aware, your body's not going to say anything to you, but then you're going to have indigestion mm-hmm. because it's an inconsistency. So the first thing to learn is to say, no, thank you very much. I, I don't like Japanese or I don't like Chinese or whatever. It doesn't matter what, what it is, what you don't like. I would rather do this. And here's the part that's most difficult, giving people permission to not like your answer. Mm-hmm. And I remember my dad was that way. My dad was, uh, he, he always wanted to acquiesce. And I knew that he hated 
Indian food. <laughs> and I loved Indian food. So I would say, um, where do you want to go? I said, oh, anywhere. You sure? Anywhere. Okay, let's go to the Indian. And all of a sudden he said, well, I don't know. <laughs> but you see, look, all the, instead of saying, no, I don't want Indian, thank you very much. That inassertiveness has psychoneurological consequences that I think enhance the probability of expressing certain illnesses. It doesn't mean it causes it. It enhances the probability because of the incoherence and the psychoneurological consequences for the incoherence. You're saying, this is not me, but I'm going to tell you it's me. Right. And it's almost like the body, it, it almost sounds like the body has a physical reaction to it, but perhaps not enough that a person can feel, but there is this, like, it almost like you're butting heads with yourself. Yes. So it requires uh, some training. And another technique that I think is really very powerful, because our, our brain doesn't know the difference with what's going on. Our cognition knows. So for example, if you're watching a, a, a show when you're eating, and there's a fire or a rape or a bomb, the brain doesn't know. Cognition knows that that's a, that's a television, but what it does is it responds as if you were there, so you're having all kinds of gastrointestinal problems with it. So knowing that, we can change that around by imagining that, and you have to live it, you can't just imagine it. How was your life before you had any kind of a problem? In this case, uh, Hashimoto or, or any kind of problem with a what was your life like? And begin to embrace that part of your life, the energy that you had, the sense of life that you had. Try to live it for a while. And in some cases, these things help in the reversal of aging, for example. So we're trying it now in the reversal of illnesses or slowing down the, uh, the progression of illness. And uh, Ellen Langer has done a lot of work with aging, and I've done it also with uh, Christian Northrup and other people where actually you... You have a picture of yourself and you see yourself, uh, let's say 20 years ago, but especially has to be 20 years ago when things were good, not just when you were young. And then you put it on your, uh, you put it in your, in, in your phone and you look at it two or three times a day and you meditate on how it felt to be that way. What was the energy that you had? What was the purpose of life that you had? And you live that for a week and you will notice differences in stress marks and ways about the... Uh, about your face, that your eyes widen, because you're living as if. And some of the things that can be done is that you go back into the archives of when you were not sick and begin to live that. I'm, I'm not saying that's going to cure it, but what it'll do is it'll enhance your sense of hope and your sense of, uh, and it's not false hope. You really are going to be feeling better because you're living as if you were there. Now, you can't do it intellectually. You can't say, oh, I'm going to do this. You have to embody it and live it as if it was actually happening. And I think you'll see some very interesting things happen. Yeah. Well, and you're someone that talks a lot about embodiment, and that's something I've learned a lot from you and talk about as well, that it's not in our logical mind, right? We could think for, you know, the next 24 hours, like I'm young, I'm young, or I'm healthy, I'm healthy, right? But it's envisioning, it's seeing it, feeling it, kind of using all your senses. So that definitely makes sense. My question to you is, would this also work if you think of it in the future, meaning instead of going back and thinking what it was like 20 years ago when you were younger or when you weren't feeling well, would it also work if you envision yourself, let's say five years from now, or even right now, right? It doesn't have to be a specific time, feeling the way you want to feel, looking the way you want to look, doing the things you want to do. Is that the same or does it have to be a specific memory of when it actually happened? Well, that's a really good question and I'll, I'll, I'll give you an idea of how to do it. 
First, you have to have archives. You have to have an experience of something that happened. Mm. But then what you can do is you take that experience and you take it to the future and you experience it as if you were in the future and, 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 and coming up with new ways. Then that's okay because you have, you have an archive, an experiential mind-body archive. But there's also a technique that I use, I call it future present, where you go to the future using this technique and you begin to look at different outcomes and you begin to embody the outcomes. Embodiment is very important. Uh, for, so for example, you do an affirmation and you say, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. As you said, you're going to do it for 10 years and nothing can happen because there's no coherence in what you're saying with any kind of information from your, from your neural maps and so forth. So if you say, I'm a good person, you say it, and then you go back to a time that you were a good person, bring that archive or that memory in and embody it, see where it lands in your body and begin to feel it. And you do it again and you do it again. And then beyond that, you have to live as if you're a good person for a week or so to create the neural maps that say, okay, I'm a good person. Then when you say you're a good person, it's not it's no longer an affirmation. It's an embodiment of a part of you. Right. And then there's less incoherence, right? Because you've linked it to a past and you've also created you being a good person over that week, right? So you've linked it to a current or like a future. Yes. Yes. And there's another, and I'm glad you brought up the future present because there's another technique that you can use for the future. Uh, imagine, let's say, uh, five years from now, as you said, and five years from now, you're healthy and you have this and you have that and life is different and you're not holding back. Then that experience, what you do is you embody it and you're creating an, an embodied future, which is okay too. The embodiment is a key. Yeah, because so many people just talk about it to themselves or to their friends, and then they wonder why things don't change. But it's it's more than just your logical mind, for sure. Now, connecting this back with authenticity versus inauthenticity, so you mentioned that one of the things people can do is just notice when they say something, but they really don't mean it. So you know, that's definitely one thing of how they can know they could be inauthentic. Uh, but that's really something that they're sort of in the know about. What do you mean about sort of remembering some of the previous things or letting it unfold? Can you give us some ideas as to how people can see where they could be inauthentic in other ways, um, aside from just, you know, when they feel like they're not telling the truth? Because I know it goes so much deeper than that. Yes, you can go back to, that. that's good, because you can go back to when you were being authentic and see how that felt. But I'll give you a specific method that you can use to find out. We have a lot of statements that are inauthentic because we don't use agency. So for example, somebody says, I hate my job. Okay, that's authentic. Why don't you quit? I can't. That's not authentic. What's happening there is that the person is not willing to take the consequences mm. of leaving the job. So what you do to be authentic, you say, I'm going to be authentic and I'm going to quit my job and, and do something else with the retirement or whatever. That's authentic. Or I choose to be here and I'm going to make this job as pleasant as I can. That's authentic. The other one I can't is a pseudo helplessness and that's inauthentic. Right. That is such a good point. And I see this all the time, really in all areas from work to, to health, to, you know, studies, to, to everything. Because it is a choice, right? You can, you may not want to, and that's okay. 
right? It's okay to say, I don't want to because I'm too scared or I don't want to because I don't want to not have any money or I don't want to because other people depend on me or whatever it may be. But it does have such a different connotation than just saying I can't. Yes, because the other this one is very existential because you say, all right, I choose not to leave this job because I have five years uh, for retirement and I choose to wait for that. Now, that doesn't mean that you continue to suffer. Since you made, since you made a choice and your choice has to be as joyful as can, as you can, then you look at what is it that you need to do in order to make your job more meaningful. That's it. And you'll find something. I'll give you an example. I, I was working my first job uh, as a psychologist. I thought I'll do anything except correctional psychology. And guess what? That's the only job I could get. Oh, gosh. So I was director of a maximum security facility for psychiatric patients. So they, they had mental problems and they were criminals. So you can't get any worse. And I did it for three years. After that, I said, I'm not going to be here anymore. I am going, and I didn't know these processes at the time. I hadn't developed the theory, but I basically intuitively was doing, I said, I give myself, do I want to stay here? No, no, I don't want to stay here. That's authentic. What am I going to do? Do I quit tomorrow? No. In six months, I will be out of here. And, I, and I'm going to see this job doing it in a pleasant way. And I'm going to see it as a stipend that they're paying me for me to find another job and continue to do a job. The moment I did that, the job became pleasant as much as possible. I did leave in six weeks. But you see, you have to say, what I am living is what I'm choosing. And what I'm choosing is my meaning in my life. So if I'm doing it, I'm, I'm choosing it and it has meaning. And that will force you to get out of the inauthenticity in confusing consequences with truth. I love that. Yeah, it's not about lying to yourself. It's about phrasing it in a way that comes more from a power perspective than a helplessness perspective, as you say. Many cases of uh, thyroid problems with relationships, uh, problems with relationships. People in relationships that really shouldn't be in for various reasons and not being able to speak up. Yes, yes. And why don't you leave? Well, I'm a Christian. Or why don't you leave? Well, because I have children. And, and no, that's not true. You're not leaving because you're afraid of the consequences. And that's your truth, the fear of your consequences. So then you either face your fears and get out, or you make a commitment that you're not going to let someone abuse you, that you're going that you're going to make your life more meaningful, that you're going to see what you're doing to create the helplessness to a certain degree. And then when you do that for a while, it's going to blow up in your face if you realize that everything you've done is still going to be abusive. It'll be very difficult to rationalize staying in that relationship. Right. So in a way, you know, when you are authentic in terms of the, not just the choices that you make, but in the way that you even say them, right? So I'm, I, you know, I want to leave the relationship, but I'm not going to now because I need to be there for my kids. But what I am going to do is put my foot down on, you know, A, B, and C. And then eventually, right, if things don't shift, there's just going to be more and more discoherence, right? And then it's just going to make it, I guess, easier in a way to leave. Is that what you're saying? Yes, but also the person, since the person becomes more aware, they're going to notice that as they're confronting and setting limits and increasing the level of stress, their symptoms will, will get worse. But at some point when they start asserting themselves, the symptoms get better. I'll give you an example that one, one of the, uh, when I, I did a presentation a few years ago, many, many years ago, actually, in, in Switzerland, and one of the uh, creators of the uh, type A personality was there. He said that uh, he had uh, cardi a cardiology practice, 
And he, this Jewish man came in with a lot of guilt, and he was working for his uh, brother-in-law. And he would come in and say, doctor, take my blood pressure. My brother-in-law got me so upset today, and, I, and his blood pressure was way up there. And this went on and on and on. One day he comes in, he said, doctor, take my blood pressure because it's going to be the highest. What happened? I finally told my brother-in-law off and I quit. The blood pressure was normal. Wow. No, it's true. And I've seen this with a couple of different things as well. Uh, one of the big things that I see it with is different skin issues. So be that acne or eczema or just different types of dermatitis. And, you know, oftentimes when people are in a place where they know they don't want to be, the skin gets almost like angry. And then once either they leave or, you know, they make a change, or at least they recognize that they want to make the change or they're going to do something about it, we see that clear up. And without even changing their foods or doing some of the things from a biochemical perspective. Yes, because the, uh, as you know, the, the skin is, is, is uh, the largest part of the immune system. Once you penetrate this, the skin, then the immune system catches on. But at first, it's to protect you. So if you have a vulnerability or if you have an incoherence or if you have something going on, it could be expressed in the skin. And when people realize that there's an incoherence and they start to, and again, they may not be able to make a change yet, but at least they uh, use the language, right, that their brain can hear as trying to make it more authentic, like with all the things that we talked about. How long does it typically take for their body to see that and to start seeing changes on the physical level? Very quickly, because you're, you're changing the psychoterminology. If you're no longer on that alarm system, your, uh, your basal cortisol is going to drop uh, your inflammation is going to drop because there's, there's no longer a need. And, and the inflammation comes from that biosymbolic process. Like, as you know from the work that, that you've done with me, that uh, when somebody offends you and, and shames you, you're going to have inflammatory molecules. Mm -hmm. So if you're not in an alarm system, your, your system doesn't need to have the alarm uh, reaction, which is the inflammatory and, and the, um, the stress hormones. So it, very quickly, you start seeing some some changes but you have to be kind to yourself because it, you, this, you didn't get there overnight. It takes a while, but it gets exciting when you say, I'm going to be a detective now of my life. Like I did with, and I'll tell you, it was a really rough job working for a psychiatric uh, maximum security facility. But I did that and it gave me a sense of curiosity, novelty, and novelty and curiosity reduces your stress levels because it puts your brain into discovery rather than confirmation of the bad. Yeah. And I think sometimes we can get into this analysis paralysis, right? Where, you know, and not to to blame therapists in any way, because I think therapy obviously is very, very helpful. But sometimes, you know, especially when people are kind of digging back to the past, which could certainly be helpful at times. But if you're constantly thinking, oh, I'm like this because of this, or I'm like this because of that, it's not that sort of curiosity mindset, but it's more of like the blaming. Because sometimes it's like, you know, we see it and we see, okay, this is why it is. But then, we want to take the next step, right? Well, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to shift it versus just going back? And sometimes people can be stuck in that place of, oh, things like this, this is why, and I guess I'm just like this, and I can't do this because my mom said this or whatnot, you know? The inauthentic helplessness. And, and one way to look at authenticity too, when you look at, a, at an illness, whatever illness it is, is that you can ask yourself and going to the forgettable part and bringing it back, the, the unfolding, if you didn't have this illness, what could you do that you don't want to do? It has that, That's the part that has the secondary gains. 
And you have to be very honest. Well, if I didn't have this problem, then I wouldn't have to put up with uh, this or that, or I wouldn't have to go to work. And uh, uh, that that's the secondary gain. What gain does it give you? And being authentic about it. And number two, which is more subtle, if you could be really honest with yourself, what could happen if you didn't have this illness that could be good, but you don't feel worthy of it? And those two things need to be answered before anybody heals, I believe. Yeah. Uh, do you have any examples of this, of just some of the clients that you worked with? Because this is so interesting. One example is a patient that I had. I used to call them patient. Now they're um, wellness students, but it was a patient at the time. She was very overweight. And being overweight has nothing to do with, with uh, food. It has to do with what you do with food. But anyway, uh, so we did that. And we did the, the authenticity going back. Okay, now what is it that if you if you lost some weight, what is it that uh, that you're going to have to do that you don't want to do anymore? And she couldn't find anything. And sometimes you can't. Then we found it in the other one. And the other one was, okay, if you lost some weight, what is it that you could do that you don't feel worthy of doing or you're afraid of doing? And immediately it came up, if I lose weight, I'm going to be attractive, and the memories of my father sexually abusing me come up immediately. Wow. You see? So no amount of uh, weight loss, nothing's going to do it because it, the body's saying, no, no, no. For you to be attractive is dangerous. That's so interesting. I mean, I, it's something that I think people just wouldn't think of off the top of their head at all. It's so hidden, but that's such a sabotage. And I'm sure there's so many different things like that. So it's just asking the question in that way. You have to. And, and this is where you can incorporate the Aletheia idea of, of the Greeks and, and Heidegger. You want to unfold and you want to you authentically go back to what is it that you're forgetting? And she was forgetting that to lose weight is, is attractive and attractive is dangerous. Now, what about compliments? That's something that you write about as well. And I think it's it's really interesting because I think it's pretty common these days for people to not be able to take a compliment, you know, someone will say, oh, you know, I like your sweater. And it's like, oh, this whole thing. And this is something, honestly, I do also. So, you know, and I know that also there, there's a health implication with that and what happens if you accept it versus if you don't accept it, that has to do with authenticity as well. Can you talk about that? Yes. And that's a very important one. I'm glad you brought it up. And that's another way of really looking at authenticity because you're, you're taught, our cultures, most cultures will teach you to excel, to do well, and then to minimize it or deny it when somebody gives you a compliment. Oh, yes. My culture for sure. Yes. So then somebody says, I love that blouse you're wearing. Oh, I bought it at a, at a bargain and it was, it was dirty and I had to clean it. What have you done? Number one, what is your authenticity? Do you believe that you're unworthy and that's why you bought it? Or you're just saying it so people won't think you're conceited? That's where you look for the authenticity. But then... The other thing that can happen is if I allow myself, this is where you have to bring the, the inauthentic, if I allow myself to accept the compliment, number one, I am going to be secreting immune-enhancing molecules and peptides. If I, if I tell you I love your blouse and you say, thank you very much, you're going to secrete oxytocin and serotonin and endorphins. But if I, if I tell you, I say, oh, this is an old thing, it's an embarrassing kind of thing. So it has hormones of, of embarrassment. So then it's shame, right? And shame. So look at the difference in opportunity to enhance immune system or to deplete the immune system just with that simple kind of thing. So then the authenticity would be anytime that anybody gives me a compliment, 
I am going to, if I agree with a compliment, if, if, if I think my hair is dirty, I'll say, no, my hair is dirty, but thank you very much. But, but, but it's not true. You want to accept the compliment because it's not your thing. It's the person giving you the, uh, the, the gift. So if you don't accept the gift, what you're doing is you're, you're going into ungratefulness. And ungratefulness is not a good emotion for immunological health. So that's another way to check out. So anytime when I'll, some, I'll, I do, you know how it is. I do workshops and things. And when I'm, when I'm talking with you, I'll do it. Somebody will say, what you just said was just brilliant. And I'll say, thank you for noticing. You're right. It was brilliant. And, I said, you know, and if people don't like it, that's okay. But then you want to be authentic. But what you're doing, and I tell them, look, excellence and mediocrity are co-authored. If somebody says that you're brilliant, they have to be brilliant enough to see brilliance. Ah. Basically, it's a co-authoring of brilliance. So you're essentially accepting a compliment, but also kind of giving them a compliment at the same time so you don't have to feel bad about it. Yes, yes. And, 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 and now, if somebody doesn't like what I do, then I give them full permission to not like it. Okay. So that's another interesting point, which I think people struggle with as well, and I think can also affect the immune system negatively because oftentimes if someone gets maybe negative feedback, they see it as criticism, right? Because how can we not, right? And then that probably goes down a whole rabbit hole of, okay, well, they don't like it. So if they don't like it, it means others won't like it. I'm not worthy, right? And it goes down all that whole domino effect, right? So, and that probably then leads to feelings of shame and embarrassment. So how do you give someone permission not to like it without it going down that way. Well, at first you have to look at your authenticity to see if you believe it because what happens, you don't believe it to a certain degree. So you get kind of agreeing with them that you don't have a right to wear that blouse or whatever. So you first have to go to your authenticity and begin to look at who you are rather than, than the false uh, humbleness that we're taught. The false humbleness that we're taught, oh, no, I really didn't. No, I really don't. You know, just go back. Do I really deserve it? No, I don't. Okay, then let me work on my self-esteem. If I deserve it, then let me work on setting limits. But you see, you're being authentic, and that is incredibly immune-enhancing when you're on th- when you're authentic. Like the guy that I told you that when he told his uh, uh, brother-in-law off, his blood pressure went back to normal. And you don't have to be aggressive to be assertive, by the way. You could just let people know that this is not what you want. and And then they have to have the permission to not like it, and you not take it as something wrong with you, but there's something wrong with them. It's like when somebody says, what's your age? I'm, I'm ageless. Oh, you have a problem with your age? No, you have a problem with wanting to know my age. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So really, I mean, it's, it's about communication, right? So it's just even saying, I understand this is where you're coming from. This is where I'm coming from. And it's okay if you don't like that. And that's already being authentic then versus trying to cover it up. And there's nothing better than silence sometimes. Silence is wonderful. When somebody, Let's say you tell somebody, look, I really don't uh, like this. And Well, I don't like what you just said to me. And you don't say anything. You let them own up to what they say. Or if, you, if they say, you're so stupid, instead of, no, I'm not. Well, tell me. Tell me how am I stupid. That's a way of making people own up what they're saying. Right. And, and they defend what they're saying. Now you having to defend what they said to you. Yeah. Those are powerful communication, psychological uh, enhancing, because you, authenticity, we're made, the reason we need to be authentic is because, because we don't want to confuse our biology to who we are. If, if you say, this is me, your biology will adjust to that. But then tomorrow you say, no, that's not me. So what happens? There's an, there's an identity crisis here. 
That's so interesting. So for people who are new to this, which I think a lot of people are, because we're just, as you said, in our culture, just completely like brainwashed, right? And trained that like things are a certain way and you have to accept this the way that it is. And it doesn't matter what you think, you know, what's one thing that they can do? Where can they start just to like, they could see what's authentic and they could start making these changes. First to be aware of who you were told you are and what are your experiences telling you of who you are. Mm. And second, all cultures, all cultures will try to keep you in the collective meaning which is you have to do this for the collectiveness of the, of the tribe. When you want to individuate, which is, which is another way of saying when I want to authenticate myself, they're not going to like it. And you have to remember, nobody can be born for you. Nobody can die for you. Nobody can feel your pain. So you ha- you're responsible for your journey. And there are some people who are going to be upset. And the people that really love you, that really love you, they will endure what you're doing and still love you. They're not going to reject you. And if they reject you, they don't love you. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's embodying uh, your authenticity is really a powerful thing. It's not easy. You don't want to do it overnight. You do it slowly, gradually being authentic with easier things and then more and more and more. And then you're going to find who your real friends are and who the people that you need to hang out with uh, are going to be. And I know it can be scary, but at the same time, from everything that you explained and you talked about in this connection with authenticity and your physical body, there's just such a big link. So it is so important. And, you know, even if we can't do everything once, like you said, we take it step by step and we do it slowly, but starting to see those incongruities is, is really going to help. Thank you so much for all of this information. But Dr. Mario, for those that want to connect with you, where can people find you? Uh, well, uh, biocognitive.com is uh, the best. And also I have, uh, I have over 200 videos, free videos, of course, on, um, on YouTube. And it's just Dr. Mario Martinez. That's my uh, channel, YouTube. And you can go there. And, of course, my books are available, The Mind-Body Code, The Mind-Body Self, uh, on Amazon. And, uh, and then I'm going to be doing a, um, a course, a seven-week course with uh, Shift Network. They'll know about it through you and through me. Yeah, we'll put a link to that as well. And that's all about aging. And you always have such interesting ways of looking at things, which is just not your typical, but they're always so enlightening and, you know, really successful strategies. So I will post all of that in the show notes as well. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. As you just heard, being truly authentic, which as you now see is more than just simply telling the truth, can really play a big role in the immune and thyroid function and your overall health. Because Lynn's TSH was constantly fluctuating, I knew she was having frequent flare-ups and her thyroid type was one that I call Hashimoto's with an agitated response. To support this, I worked on further balancing her immune system with immune balancing nutrients while also addressing immune triggers that she has not gotten to yet herself. And by the way, if you're wondering how to balance the immune system and address all the different triggers that flare Hashimoto's, which really do vary from person to person, I teach all of that in a very step-by-step way in my Thyroid Mystery Solved course. We did an enrollment in February, so right now we're in waitlist status, but we will be doing another enrollment in April. So if you're interested in learning how to support your hypothyroidism and Hashimoto step-by-step through my proven thyroid trifecta method, where it's actually personalized to you and your results, please visit thyroidmysterysolve.com. 
You can enter your name and get on the wait list and I will let you know as soon as we start enrolling. We have limited space, so it's on a first come first serve basis. And even if you're not totally sure, you can get on the wait list anyway so that you're the first to know and then I'll email you with the next enrollment date and this way you have it. As Lynn and I were doing all the biochem support, we also started exploring authenticity and looking at not only what she wasn't expressing, but also what wasn't feeling coherent. Well, let's just say a lot came up from her relationship to her job, to even some of her desires. There was quite a disconnect from what she was taught as a little girl to what she wanted, but she believed was bad. We had quite a job to do, but while there was a lot there, getting clear on what was important to her came quite quickly and actually rather effortlessly. We worked on this together and she also worked on it with a coach that I referred her to. And together we made a lot of progress. Once she was able to really express and feel coherent, so much started to change. She felt lighter, more joyful, more at peace from an emotional perspective. And physically, we finally saw her TSH stabilize, her mood balance, and her energy drastically improve. She was so happy. And of course, so was I. If Lynn sounds like someone you know, can you please share this episode with them? And please be sure that you subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. As always, when it comes to your health issues, please, please don't give up. And remember that the answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening. And I will see you next time on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.